This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. All right, this has to do with 49 Carlton Cards locations and 17 Papyrus outlets in Canada. They are closing their doors. The companies are shutting down. So our question to you, do you still take the time to buy and send handwritten cards and letters? Head over to Twitter. You can vote yes, it is more meaningful to do so, or no, email is king, or other, and leave your comments in the comment section. Vote at CKNW or at Jill Reports or give the buzz line a call, six. 04331Buzz. Well, as you likely heard on the news, the Vancouver Police Department has formalized a new policy around something called street checks, or known also as carding, talking about the voluntary interactions with police. So they go beyond the casual conversation, and during the check, you could be asked for uh, ID, for uh, identifying information. Well, joining me in studio right now to talk a bit more about this is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. And I should mention, uh, in the second half of this half hour, we're going to open up the phone lines. So if people have questions about this, Kyla has graciously agreed to stay here for the phone calls. Uh, before that we get to that, though, let's talk about this. I just gave a very basic definition. What exactly is carding or street checks? Essentially, it's an, a voluntary interaction with a police officer where the officer stops you, asks you for your identification and makes a record of that. But they're not necessarily investigating a criminal offense or using any of their other powers under the Motor Vehicle Act or, or under the criminal law. So before this policy, then, could it be anybody walking down the street? If you happen to walk by a police officer, that officer could say, hey, wait a minute, I want to have a chat with you and also give me your ID. Essentially, that was how it was being used. And there was a lot of criticism of it because statistics were revealing that it was being disproportionately used against people who are Indigenous, people of colour. And it was very concerning to see the level of representation of people of colour and Indigenous people in the Lower Mainland compared to the amount of people in those populations. Right. And so do we have an idea on how often this was happening? This was happening a lot. For Indigenous people, it was happening about 15% of the interactions and street checks were Indigenous individuals. And for people who were Black, um, it was about 2% uh, of the interactions, which is a significant increase over the population generally. So, And is it across the board throughout the city? Or do we know if there are certain areas where this was happening more than others? Generally speaking, you would see more street checking happening in areas where there was sort of high rates of crime, uh, especially the downtown east side. There are a lot of uh, advocacy, advocacy groups that were concerned about the use of street checks in um, sort of over-policing in the downtown east side with respect to drugs and, and investigations in relation to that. So what would happen if somebody, if an officer stops somebody just because the officer had a hunch or didn't like the way somebody was dressed or the way they looked, the officer stops somebody and says, hey, I want to have a chat with you. Give me your ID. 
during the process of that, maybe the person's pulling out their ID and the officer sees something suspect or then can it, could it escalate to something where the person could be searched or what, what could happen in that scenario? Yes, street checks were often used sort of as a ruse to look for other evidence. If police were suspicious, but they didn't have any lawful suspicion and they didn't have any legitimate grounds to investigate an offense, they could use a street check to document that somebody was in a particular place at a particular time. They could use a street check to see what fell out of your pockets while you're producing your ID and then things would transition from there into an arrest for possession of a controlled substance or possession of a weapon that was prohibited or restricted. Hmm. And so the policy has changed. They've now come out with a formal, a formalized new policy. What do you think about that? I was actually pleasantly surprised when I read it. I thought it was a, a very appropriate limitation on the use of this power. Um, and it, it was quite thoughtful in its approach to how people who are of minority groups might view their interactions with police. And that impressed me. Do you think that officers will then, so how will it change? What will change now, do you think, then going from really not having a policy on this to now the VPD saying this is this is the rule when it comes to street checks? I think one thing that will change is a lot of officers will stop using this in those circumstances that are improper. Um, because in my experience, the vast majority of police officers really do want to comply with the law and the policies. I mean, obviously, there's always going to be some bad eggs who are just going to break the law. And that's, you know, what you get with any any profession in any area. Um, so I think it's going to decrease the amount of interaction that people have with police. Uh, the other thing I think it will lead to is fewer street checks, because part of the policy now requires advising the person that this is voluntary, that they don't have to do it, and they're free to leave at any time. And I think a lot of people who feel like they shouldn't have have to participate in this will now go, I have the right to assert the fact that I don't have to participate in this and leave. So before when it was happening, if an officer stopped you and said, show me your ID, did you have to show your ID? You didn't have to show your ID, but the problem was that people didn't know that. Right. And what this policy recognizes is that especially when you're dealing with people who are um, disadvantaged as a result of age, as a result of their size in relation to the officer, as a result of their, uh, you know, being from a minority group, um, you'd get this this sense that people would have that they were being detained and that they're, they weren't free to leave, that their, their involvement in the process wasn't voluntary. And so making it clear to a person that their involvement is voluntary and that they can go is going to empower people who didn't feel that way before to make that decision to say, no, I'm not giving you my ID and walk away. And do you think it'll be that that simple if somebody says to an officer, no, I know my rights, I'm not giving you my ID, have a nice day, That will it'll end there? It has to end there. The police are, are prohibited from taking any further action if somebody says, I'm not going to participate in this process. Part of the policy provides a, a provision that says you can't uh, make an arrest or take any further law enforcement action based on somebody's refusal to participate in a street check. What if it's a, a traffic check? Traffic checks are different because police have the power, they have very broad power under the Motor Vehicle Act to stop somebody to check licensing, to check insurance, check sobriety, and to check fitness to drive. So police are still authorized to use that power if they're using it legitimately. If they're using it out of an improper motivation, then that's not permitted. Uh, Do you think this will change things? And I know people have brought up the the case as well, and we've covered it quite a lot. It's not the same as a street check, but the recent case at the Bank of Montreal where an Indigenous grandfather and his 12-year-old 
six-year-old granddaughter were handcuffed after being suspected by the employee of a fraud. I mean, the grandfather has come out a few times saying, look, if we weren't Indigenous, this would not have happened. They are not calling the police when a non-Indigenous person comes into the bank and there's a number off on their ID. They're probably just going to ask the person. Certainly, they're not going to be handcuffed if the police are called. Do you think this is starting to kind of change that mindset or, or starting to change things that lead to unfortunate and awful situations like that? I think imposing these policies will start to change that mindset because rather than giving police this sort of broad power that they have to decide how to use appropriately and aren't using appropriately because of institutionalized racism against uh, Indigenous people and other marginalized groups, now we see policies put in place that teach the police officers how to think about their use of power at all times that they're interacting with people so that when we get to these situations where there's a suspected fraud, they're going to take a moment and go, okay, what's the policy here? What am I supposed to be doing? And do I need to handcuff a 12-year-old girl? Right. Because in that scenario, and I think that is getting overlooked sometimes, and yes, it was the bank employee that called police, but it was the officer's choice to put those two people in handcuffs. Yes. And that choice, I think, went way too far. There's uh, there uh, Handcuffs is, is a use of force. And there's only a need to handcuff somebody if if there's a, a, a safety reason, if they're concerned the person's going to flee, um, or in circumstances where there's a, a reason to suspect the person might become violent. A 12-year-old girl doesn't fit any of those categories. And obviously, the size difference between her and any police officer, the, the level of force that any of those individuals can use, it all favored the police. So there was no reason for the handcuffing in that case. Uh, what about a scenario, say, like you said, so police... If they're going to stop somebody now, they have to tell them this is voluntary. You don't have to comply. If there, does it is it enough of a reasonable ground? Say a police officer is walking by Oppenheimer Park. Is the very fact that you're in Oppenheimer Park, if you're one of the campers, and there's there's criminal activity. I mean, anybody that walks by there, you can see it on a daily basis. Is that enough for police to be able to go in and start checking people? For street checks, the policy now says that police have to be carrying out a specified public safety purpose. So if they are investigating complaints related to public safety concerns at Oppenheimer Park, for example, um, they would be entitled to use the street check policy, but they are also required under the policy to communicate to the person what public safety purpose they're carrying out in conducting the street check. So they have to say, I'm here because there's a report of this or because we're investigating this and I'd like to see your ID. You don't have to produce it and you're free to leave at any time. So would it have to be then based on a report or could it be a police officer saying, it's clear this pile of bikes is stolen. I'm now doing a check. I don't think that they could do it like in the example of a pile of bikes because it would be very difficult for them to say it's clear this pile of bikes is stolen but I'm only going to do a street check. If they're investigating an offense they need to use their powers under the criminal code and carry that through properly. It's more about public safety circumstances so if there's a complaint uh, about you know suspected violence or, or a suspicious person who's maybe you know staking out a vehicle looking like they're going to break into it that type of a situation um, is, is more where the policy would apply than investigating an actual offense. We are talking with Kyla Lee, a lawyer at Acumen Law, talking about a new policy put forward by the Vancouver Police Department when it comes to street checks. And just before the break, I put the call out. If you have a question or a comment or if you want to say something to Kyla or need some advice, by all means, this is the time to call in. And Terry has been waiting on the line patiently. Good morning to you. Yeah, I'd like to thank you guys for bringing this subject up. Um, It's really important. Uh, years ago, I was working uh, with somebody, uh, special needs, and I was hauled off SkyTrain, actually, uh, by two SkyTrain security people who were 
trying to accuse me of doing something wrong, which I did not do. I have no criminal record. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing for a living. Um, they asked for my identification and my phone number, etc. I refused to give it to them. I said, I have my rights. I won't give you any information other than my first name. Um, I gave them my supervisor's phone number. They didn't bother to phone. They were uh, harassing me, actually. And uh, they finally let me go. But I, like I said, I wouldn't give them any information. And um, I have people have the rights, right? And um, as far as the Aboriginal grandfather and his granddaughter, who were treated so horribly rudely at the Bank of Montreal, um, or whatever it was, I hope that they actually sue the bank and get some money out of that and put it in the bank for her education for the grandchild. Not the Bank of Montreal, maybe another one, because I still think the apology is not good enough for what they ended up doing there. All right, Terry, thanks for the phone call. And actually, Terry raises an interest, interesting point. And Kyla, this is a Vancouver police policy. What about transit police, or if you're on transit, if you're in a situation like that? So every police department in British Columbia was required to put in place their own policy in relation to this. So transit police will have a separate policy. RCMP will have a separate policy. Um, so each each police force will have to have something in place, but it'll be different based on the police force that you're dealing with. All right. And was Terry right in that scenario to say, I know my rights, my name's Terry, but I don't need to give you any any of my ID or anything else? Unless he was being arrested or detained for a specific offense. If the officers were just suspicious because he's on the on the SkyTrain with somebody with special needs, that's not enough for them to ask for his ID. And, and he was right to say, I'm not going to give it to you. All right. Uh, let's continue on down uh, the phone lines. Len, good morning. Yeah. Hi, Jill. Hi, Kyla. Um, quick question. What is the policy for the RCMP? Hmm. I don't know that we know that yet. <laughs> yeah, I haven't looked into it yet. Um, I would imagine, though, that a lot of police forces are going to be putting out a similar policy. Um, and the reason for that is we've seen decisions from the Supreme Court of Canada in the last year um, that have sort of really limited the amount of authority police have. And the policy that VPD has created is likely to be demonstrative of what other policies are going to have to look like to comply with the law as it's been pronounced by the Supreme Court. All right, Len. The, oh, sorry, Len. Thanks for the call. If, Len, I think you may have still had a question. If you do, uh, give us a call back. Uh, Dennis is on the line. Dennis, good morning. Hi, Jill. As an ex-police officer, it's not that simple. In one on the street at midnight in a neighborhood, people don't, you don't know what you're dealing with. So I disagree with the cops on the grandfather and the, and the child. Absolutely. But when you're out there, it's not that simple to say the public wants to be protected. And then if we can't check and do the checks on people, and, you know, I've been retired for a while, but the bottom line is that we don't generally, in my case, arrest people. There was a cause for when I checked someone, he was in the neighborhood a certain time of the night and for no reason, or I had a call on that. And I've, I've you know, in my years, I've really seen people getting checked for no reason. All right, Dennis, thanks for that. Kyla, what's your response to that? I think that this is, again, exemplary of what I was saying about how you have some police officers who are going to always be doing things for legitimate reasons and trying their best to comply with the law. And it sounds like Dennis, when he was policing, was one of those officers. But we also know from what we hear from the community that there are circumstances where officers are overusing and and in some cases abusing their authority. So he raised an interesting point. So say there's a scenario where officers are patrolling in a neighborhood. A call has come in that there was maybe a break and enter. They don't have a description. Maybe the description, it was, a, it was a male. Does that give them the right then, if they're in that proximity, to stop any man that they see 
who's there on the chance that that might be their suspect? Not under the new policy. The new policy is very limiting in terms of if they're investigating something in the area and looking for people. It can't be these immutable characteristics like your race or your gender. It has to be something beyond that, like a description of a piece of clothing that a person's wearing that then can single that person out based on something that wouldn't be something you can't change about yourself, like your skin color. But what if it was, say, uh, there was just a, a break and enter and the, the description is a five foot seven white man. Is that enough? The, I mean, the height, you're then getting into more specifics, but if the description was just a white man and they started stopping every person who appeared to be Caucasian, they would be running afoul of the policy. And the reality is that policing requires the officers to do some work. They can't just rely on a description that's given to them. We know that eyewitness identification is notoriously unreliable. They need to do more to investigate using the resources that they have available to them to identify potential suspects. How will we know that that this policy is actually being used? This is a good question. We, we Police are required to document any street checks that they do in a street check report, but I don't expect that they're going to document that they followed every single one of the steps that they're supposed to follow when conducting the street check. And so right. we're going to have to hear from members of the community who've been checked about their experience with the process. Would you say the main one, though? So will they have to document whether or not they said to the person this is voluntary? They should have to, but I don't think that they're going to, and it doesn't appear to be a requirement that they document those steps were taken. All right. Uh, Steve is on the line. Steve, we don't have a lot of time. You've got about 20 seconds. Yeah, I'd just like to say I don't know how anyone can travel through the downtown east side and say that uh, that the uh, our city is over-policed. I mean, <laughs> I think that uh, we have a situation down there because of too much leniency. All right, Steve, thanks for that. Kyla, what do you say to that? I think that arresting ourselves out of the crisis in the downtown east side is not the solution to the problem. It's a greater social issue than that. All right. Uh, And final words then. Uh, You said earlier you're pleasantly surprised. Uh, Would you like to see other police agencies then follow with what VPD has done? Absolutely. I think that they've set a good model for other policing authorities about what to do when it comes to street checks to make it fair, balanced and reasonable. All right. That is Kyla Lee, a lawyer with Acumen Law in studio talking about this. Thanks for being with us today. Jill Bennett sitting in for Simi Sarah. Just before the break, we were talking with Kyla Lee, a lawyer at Acumen Law. She was here for the full half hour as we talked about the new policy put forward by Vancouver Police when it comes to street checks or carding. And the VPD has updated the policy. Officers now have to make sure they tell people that it is voluntary if an officer stops you for no reason other than to have a chat and asks for ID. They also have to tell you it is a voluntary interaction and you are fine to walk away if you choose to do so. Uh, Kyla Lee said she was pleasantly surprised by the policy and thinks it is a good change and hopes that officers will, in fact, follow the new rules. So we got a few calls. One of the calls to the open line was somebody who said he'd been uh, carded, he'd been checked while on a SkyTrain. And my next guest was tweeting about this, saying he was carded as he was walking out of a SkyTrain station and applauds the new policy as well. Kieran Singh is a producer on Red FM, a producer of the Hard Gender Tin Show, also a Vancouver resident and joins me on the line now. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, thank you, Jill, for having me. I know you were tweeting about this. What exactly, what happened to you? Uh, it was actually past summer, and uh, it was uh, during the day, and I was walking out the uh, city center SkyTrain station. Uh, I live in Vancouver. I work in Surrey, and I am, uh, I'm just walking out, and this uh, police officer, he uh, 
asked me to come over as he's standing outside the SkyTrain station. I walked to him, and I'm confused. Why is he stopping me, you know? Does he have to ask me a question, or does he like my shirt? No, he's asking me for my ID. I ask him why, and he starts off with, don't make it harder than it has to be. And I am scared. I am intimidated, and I'm not quite sure what is happening. And But I declined to show my ID because I haven't done anything wrong. I haven't done any crime. And I ask him, okay, why are you asking me for my ID? He doesn't say anything, but keeps on saying, don't make it harder than it has to be. And as a person of color, you hear all these stories about police detaining all people of color for no reason, and it scares you, and it did scare me. But since I work for um, a media outlet and I knew my rights, I simply declined. I was scared, but I declined. And after a few minutes, uh, I asked him out of nowhere because you know, your conscious brain isn't really working at the time. I ask him, uh, am I detained? He doesn't say anything, and I just walk away. And that that scared me to my core, and it made me think. I knew my rights as, as a citizen, but if somebody didn't know their rights, they, they would be scared, and uh, there's this term being used, psychologically detained. And I can tell you, I was that. I was in that state of mind, but I was wise enough to walk away from that situation. And when you walked away, did he say anything? No, he didn't. I asked him, am I detained? Why do you need my ID? He didn't say anything, but kept on saying, don't make it harder than it has to be. Uh, Which is bizarre that that he repeated that a couple of times. And so when Mm -hmm. you asked him, specifically asked him, why why are you asking me for my ID? That was all he said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he didn't say anything. He didn't give me any reasons. None at all. And were there any other people that was it just one officer by himself? Uh, It was just the officer by himself. And I wish I had stood after he had done this to me to see if he's doing this to anybody else. But I was just so scared that I simply wanted to escape the situation. Uh, Did you manage, did you take down his his, um, badge number or anything identifying of him? I didn't uh, because in the moment you're just so scared and intimidated, you're not really thinking straight because you know um, in your in the back of your head you're listening uh, you're recalling all the stories about people of color and police so uh, yeah uh, yeah and, and I would think that unless somebody has gone through what you went through you really wouldn't know what what it's like exactly and um, then I um, chatted with Herjandatin, who's my uh, talk show host, and we ended up doing a talk show about it. And, and people recalled all their instances that they had been detained or, or uh, you know, just out of nowhere. And it's, it's bizarre for me to think that it was legal till now. And, and you mentioned on the, uh, the the tweet that you put out says that carding doesn't work. The practice needs to stop. So do you think it's a good thing then that the police have put out this new policy? Yeah, absolutely. And um, I feel like with this policy, there's going to be, um, uh, you know, people are, are going to people are going to know that, you know, it's not OK to be carded. You know, to stop somebody in the middle of their tracks and ask for their I.D., I feel like with this new policy, there's going to be more accountability when it comes to police. I can only hope so. And you mentioned, too, that the fact that you work in media, you knew your rights. You knew that you didn't have to give your ID to this police officer. Uh, Did you get the impression, though, when you and your host did a show on this and you had people calling in or people sharing their experiences, did you get the impression that people, the general public, knows their rights or not? 
I don't think so, because um, it's sort of the impression that is uh, that's portrayed that that police won't really stop you um, unlawfully. You know, and, and if police ask you something, uh, you quote unquote comply with it. So I don't think people really know their rights when it comes to that. Hmm. And what about, I mean, obviously you speak English, but in some cases, I'm guessing there's also going to be a language barrier, which would make it even more difficult. And, and I would imagine, too, even more terrifying for somebody if they're randomly stopped by a police officer. Absolutely. And and when there is a language barrier, it's very likely that the, that person that person is an immigrant to this country. And that adds another layer to it. When you're an immigrant, you simply think, oh, God, have I done something wrong? Are they going to send me back to my country? So there, there are layers to it. Uh, do you think more needs to be done as far as the policy is out there? I think it came up while we were talking to Kyla that uh, we're still waiting to think, I think, get the, the details. All, all police forces need to do this uh, to see if the RCMP has a similar one or transit police. What more do you think could be done to make sure that people know their rights? Um, I feel like, uh, first of all, from the uh, from the policy side, there needs to be more accountability when it comes to a police officer. And, um, and on the other hand, we need to tell people their rights, you know, have more uh, conversation about it, have more dialogue about it. And maybe police needs to um, done right whatever they've done wrong by, I don't know, maybe holding seminars or handing out pamphlets or, you know, ask a police officer a question or something like that. And, and like you said, when this happened to you, so this was this past summer, the city center. So we're talking about the one right downtown, I think right by where, where I am right now at the TD Tower. Mm-hmm. What time of day did this happen? It was, it was during the afternoon. It's light out. It's, people are walking around. It's not like it's dead of night. Right, which I think is also people would find quite frightening in that, not that it would justify it, but again, and we talked about this with Kyla, had there perhaps been a call come in with a description or uh, there was something and you were the only person on the street, you were the only person getting off the train and there had been a robbery or something, you would think if there had been any of these other circumstances, you might see this. But to randomly pull someone aside in the afternoon, uh, it just does, it, it does seem absolutely wrong. Exactly. And when I when I came home and analyzed the situation, it almost seemed like the police officer wanted a power trip, if you can call it that. Yeah, because, yeah what was the, the police officer's kind of, I mean, obviously asking for your ID, what was his demeanor? It was, it was almost like a bully. Hmm. That you do this or uh, ready to face the consequences, which he didn't tell me what the consequences would be. Right, and as, as as it turned out, really there were no were none. Other than I mean, obviously there were consequences. You were terrified by this, but you walked away in the end. It wasn't mm-hmm. as though there were actual whatever these consequences were that he was uh, referring to. Exactly. And you've talked about and, and just just before we wrap up, I, and again, you you did a, a show about this. Um, do you think there's enough education, or or you did say mention having seminars and that? Um, I, I guess do we need more more outreach to make sure again people know about the policy? Mm-hmm. And we need that, but more than that, what we need is is the whole uh, police institution to be changed. We need to shift the uh, uh, you know the uh, the scariness of of police. We need to we need to hold people accountable. If somebody done some has some, done something wrong, then there needs to be consequences to that. 
because when we hear stories like that, then police officers, um, they're suspended with pay for 10 days. No, that doesn't really that doesn't really work. So there needs to be a change in the policing system as well. All right, Karen, we'll leave it there. We're out of time. But thank you again for joining us today and uh, sharing your experience with this. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jill. All right, Kiran Singh, he is a producer of Harjinder Tin's show on Red FM, talking about how he was street-checked just this past summer. We are going to take a look now at a new research co-, research co poll, taking the pulse of Canadians on how they feel about certain moral issues in Canada. Some of them, my guess is, you will think, are we still talking about that? Why are we still even talking about that? Others, quite interesting to get the reaction of people and especially how things break down according to age and sex. Joining me on the line is the president of Research Co., Mario Canseco. Mario, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Gil. It's great to talk to you on a Wednesday. Great to talk to you as well. Uh, so you broke this down into a number of uh, perhaps areas where people would have moral issue with things, four issues, and asked people about them. So let's walk through uh, what you were asking people. Well, we wanted to look into specific things. Uh, One of them uh, that I wanted to focus on was uh, animal rights issues, which has been a very prominent theme over the past few years, but also looking into issues related to human relations. How do we feel about issues such as divorce, contraception, uh, sexual relations between uh, unmarried people? And, you know, we do find that uh, although there are certain areas uh, where most Canadians are on the same side when it comes to these issues from a moral standpoint, there are still specific areas where you have a residents who don't feel the same way as the majority. And so the majority you found of people no longer, I mean, this and this question may be asked 50, 60 years ago, you would have a much different answer. But people uh, thinking about divorce, uh, sexual relations between people who aren't married, uh, having a baby outside of marriage, uh, on all of those questions, it was almost 70% or above 70% with people saying, yeah, it's fine. We don't have any issue with that. That's right. We saw more than two-thirds of Canadians who believe that none of these issues are morally unacceptable. Uh, There's a little bit of a shift when you're looking at it uh, by region. So, for instance, Quebec was quite eye-catching because they have the uh, lowest number of residents who believe that divorce is morally acceptable and the highest who believe that sexual relations between people who are unmarried are is actually unacceptable. So there's a little bit of a shift there. Hmm. Uh, But it has a lot to do with how you voted. I think one of the keys here is you look at the gender breakdowns, uh, the age, it really is not that much of a factor on many of these things. It's mostly gender differences and also who you voted for in the last election. If you're somebody who voted for the federal conservatives, you're more likely to find many of these things unpleasant. Right, because you also asked people about whether or not abortion is morally acceptable, and that's a divisive topic. And not a huge surprise that people who were conservative voters would were less likely to answer yes, as opposed to people who voted for other parties. Yeah, that one was quite interesting. You know, I I have asked about this issue many times and you, you do continue to see a situation where most Canadians are not really willing to go there. There is no appetite for reopening this debate. Uh, but yet you still see 27% of Canadians who believe that this is actually morally wrong. Uh, if you live in Alberta, if you live in Saskatchewan and Manitoba, and if you're a conservative voter, you're more likely to feel this way. If you're in B.C., if you're in Ontario, if you voted for the Liberals or the NDP in the last federal election, this is not an issue that is uh, going to make you be unhappy. Uh, you also asked people about um, stem cells, stem cell research, which is interesting. We're not, we've not actually, we haven't talked a whole lot about that. So what were the results when it came to that? 
Well, I think the main issue here is the high level of undecideds when we're asking about this. You know, if we go back to 2004, 2005, at the height of the discussions related to this, particularly in the United States, uh, everybody was talking about stem cells uh, obtained from human embryos for medical research. Now we see 26% of uh, Canadians who are undecided on this matter. So there really hasn't been as much coverage as what we saw in the earlier parts of the century. But we still find 49% of Canadians who believe that this is morally acceptable. A huge gender gap on this one. 54% of men say this is okay, but only 45% of women concur. Hmm. Uh, I'm a little concerned, too, that the findings, uh, even though it was only 3%, that 3% of the respondents said they found pedophilia morally acceptable. Yeah, that was absolutely shocking. You know, looking into the numbers, I've never done a survey that goes 100 to zero. And this is not a question where I was expecting it to happen. But you still see a lot of people who believe that this is morally acceptable. 3% around the country, 4% of men, 2% of women. Uh, also, a little bit of a shift here because it's uh, a little bit higher when it comes to Canadians who are aged 18 to 34. That still leaves 82% who believe that this is morally wrong, and that is consistent across the board, regardless of your gender, age, region, or who you voted for. Hmm. Uh, pornography also had a bit of a gender gap, and that might not come as a surprise to people. No, there were a couple of issues where the gender gap was actually quite striking. One of them is pornography. 36% of Canadians believe it's morally acceptable. For women, it's only 28%. For men, it's 45%. So a huge gender gap there. And a similar situation ensues when you look at another issue, which is prostitution. 33% of Canadians believe that it is morally acceptable. 21% of women, 45% of men. So there's definitely a change when it comes to the gender on these two issues. And do you, that's a huge difference, 21% women, 45% men. Do, do you, is it rare to see that big of a gender gap? Definitely. You know, this isn't something that we see on many of the other issues. Now, there's a little bit of a shift when it comes to animal-related matters. Uh, you know, more women believing that we shouldn't be buying and wearing clothing made out of animal fur, but it's not that high when it comes to the other issues related to human relations. You know, we don't see the same type of, of uh, gender gaps uh, when it comes to divorce, when it comes to contraception. These are two issues where men seem to have a mind of their own when it comes to their own views, and women aren't necessarily happy uh, with having some of these issues out there. Uh, medical testing on animals also had a huge, a huge gap. Very big here. There's 22% of Canadians who believe that this is morally acceptable, 61% who believe that it is morally wrong. Uh, if you're a man, you're more likely to believe that this is okay at 31%, but only 14% of women. And this is consistent with everything that we asked about animals, medical testing on animals, uh, buying and wearing clothing made out of animal fur. This has been consistent for the past few years. There's a little bit of a change when it comes to the way Canadians are looking at animal issues. Uh, the numbers have been shifting over the past couple of years on issues such as rodeos or using animals in circuses. So I wasn't surprised to see the findings, but I was actually a little bit shocked at the amount of the gender gap that we see when it comes to animal issues. And cloning of animals, too, which I thought was an interesting question, with 26% of men saying, yes, it's acceptable, and only 13% of women. Yeah, it's twice as high. I, that, that one was also quite interesting. And we do see a majority of both genders who believe that this is morally wrong, but there's still one in four men who say, I have no problem with this issue. And we, if we want to clone animals, I find that morally acceptable. Uh, you also took a look at uh, ethnic background and how that plays into it. Yes. The one issue where it's actually quite shocking is when we looked at the at something such as using illegal drugs. Uh, there's 21% of Canadians who believe that this is morally acceptable. 
uh, if you look at it from the ethnicity standpoint, 23% of Europeans, so roughly a little bit higher than the national average, but it drops dramatically with South Asian residents at 12% and with East Asian residents at 11%. So this is one of those issues where it's going to be very difficult uh, to, to handle this when you're looking at it from the ethnicity standpoint. We don't see that much of a change when it comes to regions or ages, but we definitely see it when it comes to ethnicity. Uh, which is interesting, too, because I guess it would also, I mean, what would factor in there and what you don't really know from the survey is is someone's background. To, just because you check a box, there's so many other factors that could play into that. Oh, absolutely. I think it has a lot to do with, with upbringing and, and, and specific things. You know, one of the things that is really interesting to me, and I've been tracking this since, since the start of the discussions about marijuana legalization, uh, there's always been a majority of Canadians, and even more so here in B.C., who believe that this is something that should be done, who are happy with the fact that uh, marijuana is now legal. Uh, but the level of support is always lower among East Asian communities. So there's definitely something there that might be historic, or it has a lot to do with your upbringing when it comes to the way you view drugs from a moral standpoint. Was there any one question or one response that sticks out to you that really surprised you? Well, I think one of the ones that was quite interesting to me is looking into sexual relations between two people of the same sex. We see 61% of Canadians who believe that this is morally acceptable and 25% who say that it is morally wrong. Uh, Last year, we did a wide-ranging survey that was looking into issues related to LGBT rights. And and we also found that, you know, one in five, one in four Canadians who are still uncomfortable with something like this. And what's interesting here is there is no gender gap necessarily as high as what we saw before, but also age doesn't play a role. You know, we see 24% of millennials, 24% of Generation Xers, and 26% of baby boomers who believe that sexual relations between two people of the same sex are morally wrong. So we have those fluctuations and other issues when it comes to ages. Here it seems to be a matter of a group that is essentially dead set in their ways and they don't want to look at things differently. I'm surprised by that number, that it's so high and right across the board. It is high. It is actually higher if you're a conservative voter at 39 percent, liberal voters 21, NDP voters 16 percent. But it also has something to do with ethnicity. You know, we only see 21 percent of Europeans who believe that this is morally wrong, but it climbs to almost 40 percent among East Asians and South Asians. So I think this is one of those questions where you just continue to keep tracking this. And, you know, maybe five, six years down the road, we'll be talking about these numbers and we'll have a smaller proportion. Ready for a spring break to remember? Amtrak's got just a ticket for you and your crew. With share fares, you and your friends can save up to 60%. The more who travel, the more you save. Skip the hassle of driving through the Northeast while exploring D.C., Philly, New York, and Boston. No middle seats and plenty of legroom are just an Amtrak away. And with stops right in the heart of your favorite cities, you'll arrive downtown, not out of town. Savings start with three travelers. Eight travelers required for 60% discount. Visit Amtrak.com slash to book. Restrictions may apply. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com of Canadians who believe that this is something that is morally wrong. All right. Interesting findings uh, for sure. Mario, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Jill. Anytime. That is Mario Canseco, president of Research Co.
Well, at Vancouver City Council, Councillor Adrian Carr put forward a motion that aims to divest the city from fossil fuels. The idea passed unanimously, and Councillor Carr is joining me on the line now to talk a bit more about that. Councillor, thanks so much for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, So this was a motion, if I'm correct, is asking staff to report back on options and timelines for the city to fully divest from fossil fuels? That's right. Uh, So what does that actually mean for the city? Well, first of all, we have taken steps already. So we don't directly invest in um, in any investments that have uh, fossil fuels in them, but we have indirect investments. For example, our chief financial officer actually talked about uh, things like we have credit cards with banks, and banks are big funders of the fossil fuel industry. So we're going to take a look at the credit cards. We're going to take a look at financing and in, in, uh, that's related to the banking world right now, which is, I think, where there's... Um, you know, still a lot of work to be done around investment. Um, we have a municipal um, pension plan. Uh, so my motion called on us uh, playing a role in trying to move the municipal pension plan off its investments in fossil fuels, which it still has. Um, so, um, and in terms of um, other kinds of uh, vehicles for investments, we have a municipal finance authority um, that has um, ability for municipalities, not just Vancouver, but others around the province, to be able to be able to invest. And several years ago, I learned that if Vancouver to were if they if we were to work with the municipal finance authority to create a fossil fuel free investment fund and put a significant amount of money into it, uh, that that would then enable other municipalities to use that same fund, um, that that ethical fund, for their own investments. So those are the kinds of moves uh, we're looking at. And so where would the money be invested then instead? Uh, Well, where there are investments happening that are going fossil-free, a lot of it is into renewable energy. Um, So it's renewable sources of of energy, solar, wind, etc. Some of it's going into um, municipal bonds and helping with affordable housing and retrofitting housing, for example. Those are the kinds of things that I'd like to see happening. Um, There are a lot of investors out there who want to put their money into ethical places. There are places that need money cities, for example, in terms of producing affordable uh, green housing that's, uh, that's climate-friendly. Um, and why not make that match happen? Uh, you mentioned banks, uh, though, and, and in that in investing in banks, you're indirectly investing in fossil fuels because banks do invest. I mean, if there's one thing banks are good at, it's making money. So how do you replace the investment return that you would be getting through investing with banks by shifting to these other places? Well, the interesting thing is that the new evidence coming out globally from the C40, which is the climate-friendly cities around the world that represent about 75% of urban uh, uh, economies, uh, they are finding investing not in the fossil fuels, but actually in renewables and the other kind of socially responsible areas I've talked about, like affordable housing, is making more money. So, for example, the BC Government Employees Union divested from fossil fuels a few years ago. Um, they just let me know that, that their 2019 numbers came in. So their return on investment, no fossil fuels, all the things I'm talking about positively, their return was 21.7%. Like, that is phenomenal. And that's way better than, um, than the investments in fossil fuels right now. So what people are saying, analysts around the planet, that fossil fuels are becoming stranded assets. The return on investment is lower 
And the real fiduciary responsible move to make is investing in the renewable energy sector and the green energies. Uh, So this is a motion that, again, is going to ask staff to report back on options and timelines. What kind of timeline would you like to see here? Well, I did embed a timeline um, in the end with an amendment so that the report back would be within this year, 2020. Um, and in talking with city manager, it appears that it's probably not going to be just one report back because my motion covers a number of things. So there might be a very quick report back on one aspect of the motion, and it might take a little longer for some other aspects. But basically, you'll see um, action happening throughout this year. Uh, And what do you say to some of the reaction, uh, which calls a move like this a bit hypocritical in that councillors still fly places for conferences, they use air travel, they use fossil fuels in their day-to-day lives and could not fulfill their role as councillors without fossil fuels. And on, on the one hand, you have that dependence. And on the other hand, you're saying we want to divest from all of this. That is an excellent question. Uh, I have a reluctance to fly. I've not, I've not been going to some of the conferences that I used to because of that. Um, I have taken some trips. I've asked that there be offsets purchased. And more to the point, I've actually been talking with staff for a few years now about developing some kind of a, a trust fund fund, a carbon trust fund within the city or maybe within Metro Vancouver regionally um, that would enable people who want to fly uh, to, um, uh, to and want to pay um, some offset money that we could accept that offset money and that uh, use that offset money to actually mitigate uh, greenhouse gas emissions in our own city. I think people would love that opportunity to know, okay, I've got to take that flight or I want to take that flight. Here's this option to do an offset in Vancouver or in Metro Vancouver, and that money is going to go to help people retrofit homes or it's going to go to some other purpose that will actually really mitigate the air, air travel I'm doing. Uh, so if this, uh, if, if this doesn't change, though, and you mentioned the municipal pension plan, if that pension plan is still invested in fossil, fuel, fossil fuels, will you not take your pension? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> well, I think I will take the question. I, my husband would probably have a hard time with a decision like that. Um, but, you know, the point is change is going to happen. I honestly believe it. It's just a matter of um, the pressure. And so in my motion, I'm asking that it not just be Vancouver that pressures, pressures the pension plan, uh, but actually to work through the Union of BC Municipalities, so all municipalities, to actually get on board. We did at one point. We asked for a report, and it came out five years ago from the municipal pension plan. That report is now up, uh, way outdated. Um, so my motion asks for UBCM to request an updated report given the new information that's available both about the climate crisis and about the, um, the stranded assets and the financial prudence of actually divesting. Right. Okay. So, but you didn't really answer the question. The pension plan as it is now gets money from fossil fuels. Yeah. You could take a stand and say, I don't want the pension that makes money from fossil fuels. No, I, I, I think I answered that. No, I, 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 I'm intending to take my pension, but I am intending to work very, very hard to make that an ethical pension. All right. Councillor Carr, we will leave it there. Thank you so much.
Thank you. Have a great day. All right. Adrienne Carr is a Vancouver City Councillor. Again, she put forward a motion at Council yesterday uh, aiming to divest Vancouver from fossil fuels. Well, just before the break, we were chatting with Adrienne Carr, a Vancouver City Councillor, putting forward a motion. It passed unanimously to have staff look at ways to divest from fossil fuels and to report back with options and timelines for the City of Vancouver to do that. Well, let's bring in Stuart Muir. He is the CEO of Resource and joins me on the line now. Stuart Muir, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Simi. It's actually Jill filling in today. Oh, Jill, pardon me. <laughs> That's <Good> okay. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, we've seen some others, uh, UBC looking at this as well. Uh, Adrian Carr's motion, I think the latest one. What do you think of these places and now most recently Vancouver City Council looking to divest in fossil fuels? Yeah, well, they kind of already did that, I guess, by not having a snow removal fleet burning fossil fuels. But um, all joking aside, I, I think that there is a role for climate policy in Canada that is held by the federal government. Primarily, they have the international agreements. They're the ones who are tasked with delivering on all of these policies. It's a right and proper role for them. I think when we see municipalities sort of dabbling in this, when the real job is to make uh, transit work and have transit, make the city walkable, build better neighborhoods. Um, but instead, they're going into divestment to antagonize uh, big companies uh, that everyone depends on for daily life. Um, you know, we had 10 years of an activist government in Vancouver City Hall that got thrown out on their ear. Uh, is that really what uh, residents want more of when, you know, we see this sort of uh, tilting at windmills? Because it's not going to make a darn bit of difference, except for, I guess, feeling good. Um, you know, Jill, recently, anyone driving down, uh, you know, fr- from Coquitlam, Burnaby to Vancouver would have noticed some destruction to construction last year. That was Fortis, B.C., renewing a 20-kilometer stretch of gas pipeline. You know, there's a big company. That's the kind of company that Adrian Carr sh- says should be demonized and criticized. You know, we have neighbors, we all do, and friends who work for this good company. It produces dividends that are very solid for people in their retirement portfolios. Uh, Why persecute them? They are allowing us to have a a cleaner form of energy in our daily lives. Uh, What is the purpose of this? That's what I don't understand, frankly. Uh, Does it send the message, though, when places will divest or look at uh, renewables and cleaner energy options? Does it send the message to the bigger companies that they need to also diversify and make sure that's part of what they're doing on a a bigger scale? Well, it's kind of a mixed message. You know, we're, we're going to uh, insist that we sell your awful company shares because we don't want anything to, to do with you. And by the way, could you improve your practices? Um, kind of a mixed message for corporate Canada to hear, I think, when, when you have that. In fact, uh, example, uh, Suncor, uh, aren't they installing uh, electric vehicle charging posts across Canada in a network so you can now drive? I'm not sure if it's all the way across Canada, but, but they've just done that. Um, not because they had to. They, they did it because they wanted to, and it's the right thing to do. So um, this it seems to be working. Um, you know, the cold snap, uh, not, not just snow removal, but, you know, these, these bitter cold temperatures, it reminded us that uh, we really do rely on, on the hydrocarbons that have to be managed. We have a gas system. So Fortis has made this big investment in a new, uh, a new system. It has the potential to carry other kinds of gases, even hydrogen gas in future, certainly renewable natural gas can go through that. So why would you, you know, sort of persecute and, and call out a company that's doing the right thing so that decades into the future, we can deliver renewable natural gas in, in some quantity. I don't think it'll ever be more than 15% based on what we know today, but 
you know, we can certainly mix and diversify. We can improve carbon capture. We can do things in the upstream where the gas comes from. By the way, BC's got some of the cleanest natural gas in the world in terms of low CO2 coming out of the ground, low sulfur in, in places. And we should be, you know, appreciating that. Um, instead, stigmatizing it, uh, it just seems uh, surreal. Um, is, that, is that what City Hall is there to do? You know, right now, uh, people, people want to be able to get around and uh, can't do that. that. That's where the focus should be. They want to have denser neighborhoods. You know, the Green Party, I think, a lot of people think it's a sort of green, but it seems more conservative. You know, the, the approach to livable neighborhoods and density, uh, what's that about? You know, if we really want to change how people live, let them live in the center of the city and not drive around all the time. Uh, and I mean, it does come on. Uh, this is a council as well that wrote a letter to the big oil companies uh, wanting to hold them accountable for climate change. Uh, does that do anything other than than perhaps annoy the big companies? Well, I think it annoys, uh, you know, ordinary uh, workers and a lot of, a lot of Albertans have canceled things like weddings and, and, and ski holidays in, in B.C. It certainly accomplishes that. I don't think that was the goal at all. But, um, it, it, you know, we... The reality is that 80% of the energy we use in our energy-intensive lives and civilization does come, approximately 80, from, from so-called fossil fuels or, or hydrocarbons. And um, we can't just, you know, drop doing that. So alternatives, yes, uh, mitigation, uh, carbon capture and storage and sequestration is, is really important, planting trees. Of course, you know, we're talking about all these things. Everyone knows this nowadays. We all know this. Um, that's the stuff we got to do. And the companies that are leading the way, you know, have got – uh, I think Enbridge, there's a company, it's got a huge uh, distribution network in B.C. Uh, less people work for Enbridge in B.C. It used to be Spectra, huge company. Uh, they're into wind farms and stuff like that. They they also have um, in the upstream where the, we're talking about, say, gasoline and diesel, not just natural gas. We are leading the way. Of course, it's not perfect, but we're leading the way in our practices because we have regulations, laws, and a desire to improve the efficiency of how oil is extracted and moved and, and used ultimately, you know, cars 10 years ago, a car, buy a new car, uh, compared to that same model today, you know, Corolla, you'd be I'm not sure the exact number, but it's astonishing how efficient these internal combustion cars are getting. So that's happening. And then you've got, you know, people want to get an electric car and the government's giving them funding to do that, which is great. Um, so lots of things are happening. So this sort of departure into, okay, now let's uh, down tools and just start, uh, uh, you know, uh, accusing corporations of, of being bad when, you know, by what measure are they deserving of this treatment? Uh, you know, the, these, these uh, campaigns to impel city councils to do this thing come from a very small segment of lobbying. Uh, a lot of it derived from, uh, frankly, organizations that that uh, see vancouver as being sort of a an easy place to because of our our wonderful outlook on life our relaxed way of life an easy place to sort of seed and, and propel forward uh campaigns like this so that others can imitate them i think that's the strategy here and kind of vancouver is always willing to to adopt these measures so i guess that's that's life in vancouver but all right does it help yeah how does what does it do for our taxes that's all good questions. But Stuart, we are out of time at this point. We'll have to have you on again to talk about this. But thank you so much for coming on the program today. That was so Stuart Muir, the CEO of ResourceWorks. We-
We touched on this when we were chatting with Gordon MacDonald earlier on in the program. It has to do with an Okanagan man who was dismissed from his job at a local winery when more than 5,000 litres of wine went down a floor drain. He apparently made this mistake twice. It happened at the Mission Hill Winery on November 19th in 2018. That's according to the latest documents that we were able to obtain or that were obtained for this story. And again, that was the second time he had made this mistake that while flushing out the pipes that he uh, didn't change a valve that he was supposed to change. And instead of the water going down the... Uh, drain. Well, it was the wine. And it was more than $100,000 in losses, this latest uh, mistake, about $162,000. So the question is, was the company justified in firing the man because of these mistakes? Let's bring in Lior Samfiro, who is an employer employment lawyer at Samfiro to uh, and LLP. Uh, Lior, thanks so much. Great to chat with you again. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me on. What's your take as an employment lawyer on this case? So if you told this story to, to most people, I think they would say, listen, that guy made a huge mistake, cost the company a lot of money. Clearly, that's cause to let him go. But the reality is, uh, Jill, that it's not necessarily the case only because it is so difficult to establish cause for termination. It is a cause for termination is the death penalty, the worst punishment that an employer can provide. And because of that, it's reserved for the worst offenders. So even though this guy obviously made a, a big mistake here, it's a question of whether or not it's so fatal to the relationship that it's impossible to employ him. And I would certainly see the argument that he didn't do anything on purpose. Yes, he certainly made a, a, a tremendous mistake, but there's not necessarily a reason to think that he hasn't learned from it and that that's going to repeat. So because it's so difficult to terminate for cause, you know, I would have absolutely seen the argument. Now, ultimately, uh, the arbitrator here decided that there was cause. I can tell you that there would have been many other arbitrators uh, on the situation that would have found in favor of the employee and it is important for everyone, employers, employees, to understand that to terminate someone for cause, certainly if it's one incident of misconduct, very, very difficult. And uh, the local branch of the Service Employees International Union did grieve the termination, but it did come out in the arguments that he was actually guilty of the same incident, something very similar, twice. So twice he flushed a lot of the wine down the drain in an 18-month period. Uh, the phrase being used is culpable negligence. Does that add more credibility to the argument? Yeah, and really the arbitrator, and I had read the decision, uh, did focus on the fact that he did it before, that it, this was something that he could have and should have learned from his previous mistake. Uh, and I think that if this was an isolated incident the first time, yeah, I don't think there's any chance the arbitrator would have found that, uh, that this is justifiable termination. Now, in terms of culpable negligence, it's interesting what the, what the arbitrator said, that it's not just a situation where he made a mistake. You know, mistake is something that happens. We can forgive that. He simply didn't do his job. His job was 
to to make sure that this valve is operating properly. He just didn't do it. So so his negligence here was that much more severe. It, it's not simply you know pressing button A when he should have pressed button B. It, it is simply not doing his job. So if we have these two combinations, uh, not doing your job plus this is the second time in a span of a year, a year and a half. So you should have really uh, shaped up after that first time. Uh, the arbitrator came down on the side of the employer here and decided that's enough to justify cause. But even with all those things, Jill, it was still a very close call. Because if it was a difference, a difference in that he was, say, filling in for somebody or he was doing something that he hadn't been fully trained to do, my guess is he would have had a much stronger argument. Absolutely. It, it, it makes it less less culpable in that situation. He's doing his best. He's learning. He's not necessarily that familiar with, with what he's supposed to do. Uh, it's an honest mistake. But if, if it's his job to do it, he's been doing it for a while, he's done this mistake before, they talked to him, they warned him, they said this can't happen again. It's one of those situations, given the losses, the employer is going to say, well, can we afford to take this risk again? It's happened twice. Can we afford another $100,000 loss a third time? And the arbitrator said, well, enough is enough. It's too much in this situation. And I think that makes sense. But even still, remember, the only reason the union grieved this is because they felt that despite everything, there is still an argument that it's not caused uh, and again, keeping in mind, it's very, very difficult to establish cause. What about the argument he made uh, during uh, the hearing as well? He noted that the workload and the pressures were extremely busy at that time of year, saying he was working weekends through the week and that his overtime for that period was about 257 hours. That is definitely a mitigating factor. You know, it, it, we're all human and he says, I'm human. I was trying to do my best and trying to, you know, do everything at once and overworked, etc. cetera. Uh, but ultimately, I think, and that, that argument does have some merit, no question. But ultimately, I think the arbitrator found that the, 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 the mistake here was such a, a, an important, trivial, uh, and essential part of his job that there really would be no excuse. If, if you're not doing this part of the job, why are you even there? It's, you're the valve guy. You have to make sure that the valve uh, from uh, tank A to tank B is operational. If you're not doing that, then may as well not be there. So we can't, you can't hide behind the fact that your workload is so high. So ultimately, while it was a mitigating factor, not enough to, uh, to win the day here and to say that, no, determination was not justified. So with that finding, then clearly he's not getting his job back. Is he entitled to severance pay? So in, in this situation, given the fact that the determination was that there is cause, he would not be owed any compensation. In a unionized environment, if there's no cause, you get your job back potentially with pay. In a non-unionized situation, if you're terminated when you should not have been terminated, you can't really get your job back. You simply get severance. Either way, that the test is whether or not the company can establish cause. So for him, given the fact that he's uh, unionized, severance would not be an option. Uh, and because the arbitrator found that there is cause, he doesn't get his job back either. So ultimately, uh, he, he gets nothing, no compensation. He simply has to move on and find another job. And having read the, reading, or the ruling and looking at the details of this case, do you think that was the right ruling? I do. And and. I would feel I feel very differently if this was a first and isolated incident. I would have said there's there's almost no way 
that the incident, as bad as, and as extreme as it was, would justify a cause termination. But because it was the second incident, and it's not like the first one was, you know, 10 years ago, so, you know, a lot of time has passed. If it was the second incident in about a year, year and a half, I think it was uh, the right decision. I think most business owners would have a very big concern to have an employee that's making such big mistakes so frequently. So I think in this particular case, the arbitrator got it absolutely right. And is the the amount that he cost the company, that must come into play as well, in that this mistake didn't cost them 50 bucks or 100 bucks. It cost them, in this one scenario, more than $160,000. Exactly. It goes to the issue of can we afford to give him another chance? Because that's ultimately the main question that uh, that the law asks here. Can this relationship be rehabilitated? Is it okay to say, well, we'll give you one more chance because, uh, you know, what you did is not so fatal to the relationship. But when the potential risk to the employer is so high in this situation, if they were to give him another another chance, it is something that, that an arbitrator cannot disregard, the law cannot disregard, and would definitely uh, point towards, no, this is cause, this is too much, second incident happened again and cost so much money that we really are not going to put this employer at a risk of losing yet another $150,000 So that is a huge, huge consideration. All right. Well, thank you for joining us and shedding some light on this. Uh, Makes a lot of sense now how they came up with that ruling. Uh, Lior, thank you again so much. Thank you. Lior Samfiru, he is an employment lawyer, a partner at Samfiru to Mark and LLP. Thanks for being with us. Well, as you know, whenever we see reports of wildfires or any type of emergency, whether or evacuations and uh, people in life-threatening situations, we often also have stories about animals, whether it's animals who were left behind, animals that can't be taken to various shelters or evacuation centers. And it does seem like it's something that maybe needs a bit more attention paid to it. Well, the BC government has invited the BCSPCA to share recommendations at a meeting tomorrow, and it has to do with including animals in emergency planning and response. And joining me on the line to talk a bit more about this and what this means is Marcy Moriarty, Chief Prevention and Enforcement Officer with the BCSPCA. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on. Where do animals fit right now as far as emergency legislation? Well, currently animals are considered um, at the discretion of a local municipality. So it is really left up to municipalities as to whether they want to specifically include animals in their emergency preparations or response. And, And we think that with the BC government looking to modernize their emergency management legislation, that this is the perfect opportunity um, to, to ensure that animals aren't just left at the discretion. So what would you like to actually see written into legislation? Well, I think, one of the, again, the most important things is that animal issues and animal management and animal um, safety is considered uh, mandatory as part of the preparation for emergency response and response um, in this province. So currently there would be two separate um, issues. One um, would be to have a coordinated approach to deal with Um, animals left behind evacuation lines, so domestic animals, if people have had to flee their homes and they've left their animals behind, a coordinated approach on how how those animals are are assisted. And then the second one is around animal evacuation centers and that they be contemplated 
just as well as with um, municipalities, uh, consider human evacuation centers in those areas. Those are those are two of the major ones. We also want to really look to see um, collaboration and coordination, uh, which is really fo- uh, highlighted in in the government's paper around this. That in- would include animal um, organizations as stakeholders. Uh, all right. So let, let's look at the, the one, because one of the things that comes up as well, when you mention animals left behind, whether whether it's people that have, have had to pick up and leave and don't know exactly, maybe their animal isn't, isn't right there in front of them. Or in some cases, I know people have been in an evacuation zone. Maybe they've been out for the day and suddenly they can't get back to their homes and their animals are in their homes. What, how would that change? Well, and again, that's one of the most serious situations that we at, at the BCSPCA have been called in to assist with in the past. Um, we're uniquely sort of placed because we have special provincial constables who already have the ability to, um, you know, attend on property, uh, whereas in certain circumstances. So in this case, it would be providing certainty and coordination on how that response and who would be able to, to respond. The document paper does talk about different categories of volunteers and mentions a category called service providers, whereby um, there would be certainty in the preparation that, okay, if this is needed, the, the local authority would contract with a certain trained organization. Um, that, that would be one of the, the highlights. We have, again, ad hoc responded to emergencies um, in the past, obviously the most recent being the fires and floods in 2017 and 2018. And I think now is the time to it not be an afterthought with animals, um, but really put it the foremost in, in terms of uh, planning going forward. Because as it stands now, if we're in a situation where an area has been evacuated for, for whatever reason, SBCA can still go in, can't they? Or do you have to be invited to go in if there are animals or that's an issue? Well, we have to be invited um, because, of course, there's uh, there. There's the laws around the setup and who who first responders can attend. And I think, again, some certainty with respect to contemplating um, who would be allowed and the extent of also to what um, what assistance there may be in um, financial assistance, uh, quite frankly, in um, in this type of response. Uh, that's been one of the areas I know for many organizations is everybody is really wanting to help, but the ability to have some training provi- provided and some assurance that at least some costs can be recouped um, as part of uh, the government's overall budget for emergency response. And you've also mentioned, or there has been a lot of talk as well about individuals who would be reluctant in many cases to leave their homes. If you have a choice of you have to leave and perhaps leave your animals or you're going somewhere where your, your animals can't go with you, I would think a lot of people would say, well, forget it. I'm going to take my chances and I'm going to stay here. And is it the legislation then, is it trying to alleviate people, putting people in a position where they would have to make that choice? Well, you've raised exactly, I mean, we've, you can't turn on your TV during a disaster and see, uh, without seeing those interviews with heartbroken um, animal owners or people saying, look, I'm not going to leave. And that puts first responders and those individuals and their animals at risk. And so absolutely what, what we are recommending is that within this preparedness part that municipalities and or local authorities are going to have to look at to include that animal evacuation piece so that it's not, as it is now, more of an afterthought or it's at the discretion, that that would be um, part of the plan. And also, too, uh, the the current government plan suggests um, 
a requirement that emergency management plans um, be in place within different institutions, different um, essential services. And we think that that's a really important part for um, organizations or industries that have animals um, included in them or businesses that they, they've contemplated, okay, what is our emergency plan? How, what are we going to do if we have to evacuate um, in, in an emergency situation? Uh, because I've even seen situations with evacuations where the animals, if people have been separated and then at evacuation centers, the animals are in cages and are held in one part of the, the center, which seems, I get it, that there's not maybe somewhere else to take them, but the animals are stressed. It's not ideal for them. The owners are stressed. It just doesn't seem like it's the, that we've really paid enough attention to it. Absolutely, and I think that's where that planning and and I think many organizations now are turning their mind to developing um, standards and protocols for um, setting up these emergency animal centers or the integration of animals within um, where their humans are being kept. And so this is something that we're very pleased the government sort of opened up the door to this discussion. And as long as um, animal-related issues uh, and animal organizations are considered a stakeholder, I think we can see improvement in that area working together with um, with local governments and First Nations because I think this is a this is a problem that's not going away. We're seeing more and more emergencies and now is the time to look, see if we can get ahead at least a little bit. And just to be clear, we're talking domestic animals, pets, but are we also talking about livestock or is that a completely different area? Absolutely. We're talking, I think, about all sorts of classifications of animals. With respect to livestock, there are some, some certain requirements, um, uh, but I think that the emergency planning is, is equally important. Or businesses um, that, for instance, have, uh, have animals, that there is some requirement for some planning. And, and we've really seen an overwhelming response from the public on this issue um, that, that do think that it is important to include animals within the context of emergency planning. Uh, there was a petition that you were asking people to sign. It's almost at its goal of 20,000 people. So what's going to be happening next with that and moving forward with this? Well, yes, we're, we're really encouraging people to visit our website and sign this petition, just lending their name to say to government, yeah, we, we want to see animals specifically included. They can go to our website. We're at 17,636, but we'd love way more than that. The next step, government had reached out um, as one of our uh, many stakeholders to provide comment, and we're looking forward to meeting with them. Um, unfortunately, our meeting tomorrow, actually, I just found out got cancelled, but we <laughs> will be meeting with them next week um, and providing our written submissions. Um, and we're, we're uh, cautiously optimistic, I think, that we're going to see a change for animals um, in emergency preparedness and planning in this province going forward. All right. Well, we will uh, keep uh, tabs or keep uh, in touch with you and see what happens next uh, following that meeting. Marcy, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. All right. Marcy Moriarty, Chief Prevention and Enforcement Officer with the BCSBCA. And again, if you're interested in signing the petition or learning more about that, you can head over to their website and all of the information is there for you.